Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is Trené McGee. Trené is a state representative representing the 116th District in West Haven, Connecticut. Uh, she is a, a Democrat and a Christian, and she is pro-life. And so that makes for an interesting combination. And so that's what we talk about on this podcast. We talk about her uh, pro-life position and how she um, sees the abortion industry as systemically racist. So that's where we're going, folks. So buckle up, get ready for a lively Theology General conversation. And please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only. Trinae McGee. Trinae, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy uh, schedule as a politician to come on uh, Theology in the Raw. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. And and she's so busy that she's doing this on her phone in her car. (laughs) Yeah. One of those moments where your schedule just it just flies out the window, and yeah. you know you have a last minute meeting. I will t- I will try to keep this under an hour, so because um, uh, I know you have places to go, people to see. So let's jump right in. Uh, for those who don't know who you are, tell us a bit about yourself. You can start how early, however early you want, um, whatever details you want to give. My name is Trené um, McGee, and I am currently um, a state legislator for the state of Connecticut. I serve and represent the 116, which is um, West Haven. Most people know New Haven because of Yale, so I am in between New Haven and another area, Milford. Um, And I did not think I'd be in politics. Um, I started acting when I was three years old, and I started professionally working as a kid. And then um, I went to college for acting, and I kind of hit this, I think all college students hit this place of, is this something I actually want to do or do I want to go in another direction? And that's kind of where I was. Um, I had really immersed myself in college into um, many leadership opportunities. And so I was a part of student government. So I kind of liked that space, um, but was still clinging to what I had always known. And when I graduated, I worked for a theater and I was seeking representation from agencies. And then Around the beginning of 2019, um, I just felt God just just say, you know, this is kind of not where I want you to be right now. And that was really tough because I really I was working to get closer to something I've always wanted, you know. Hmm. Um, And then around that time, I started to really seek God and fast and pray. And I was fasting. We were doing the Daniels fast with my church. So it it was like I had a lot of support. And then the door for politics opened up and I was asked to be on my town's um, town committee. And at that time I was like, you know, I don't know if I could really commit to that. I've never done that before, but I knew that it was where God was leading me. I just knew it. Um, it came too quick, too easy. Um, the pieces were all in place for me to deny like, Oh, this isn't, you know, (laughs) this isn't God, you know? Um, and so I ultimately ended up running for the city council and then like, like less than two years later, I was running for the state house. Um, so I know that's kind of like that's like the you know I know that's kind of like a a, a short story, a long story made short. Um, but that was what the journey was like for me to get to the okay. capital. Uh, that's a whirlwind. Yeah. That ha- I mean, yeah. maybe it just seems those seem to happen so quickly. Is that does it feel like a big whirlwind to you? Or oh yes, oh yes, it happened very quick. It happened very quickly, and at the same time, in my personal life. I had gone through like, you know, a breakup Mm. and, um, you know, I, I, there were very close friends I had that I just, we were, I I felt, I, I physically felt like things were just ripping away from my body, you know? Um, Mm. and so I, things would be extrapolated from my life. And at that time I didn't know, oh, this is, you know, where God is leading me and these people can't come and that's okay. You know, there's, there's people there for a season. So it was definitely a physically, it was a physical, emotional and spiritual whirlwind because I had to trust God in a way that I had never really exercised before because I was going into a space I did not go to school for, you know, I did not feel qualified for, you know, until God was like, well, if I'm leading you there, you know, yeah, yeah you're ready. <laughs> so so you weren't naturally in, into politics. Is that something that you've kind of gotten into more recently that wasn't always in the back of your mind at all? Or You know, it's, it's it was never in the back of my mind is something I'd be doing. 
Um, but I, I, I always loved government. Okay. Uh, it was my favorite subject in school, history, um, government. Um, like I remember like enjoying Christiane Amanpour, like just having fun watching it. <laughs> so I did always, you know, I, I always loved government and that's, it's, it, God is so funny because, um, it's not something I would have ever pursued, but I could see how it makes sense with, you know, some of the things that I really enjoy doing. And then I have fun doing it. And I think a large part of government is, a, is truly a call. It really is a call. Either people get into it because they go to school for it or nepotism, or it's truly a call. And, you know, when God puts you where you're purposed for, it's, it, it just aligns. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just alignment, true alignment, because in this space, I feel like I'm fulfilling more of a purpose in my life than I think I'd, I'd be doing, you know, I'd be on set right now. So yeah. I, we, I came across your, your name recently, really, when our mutual friend Justin Gibney uh, told me about you. So like we all do today, I start Googling around. The first thing I saw was this three-minute short speech you gave at the, um, the March for Life rally in January 2023. Um, you're, you're a, a Democrat politician speaking at a pro-life yeah. rally. So that alone, I was like, whoa, what's going on here? But then I, um, oh my word, those three minutes were absolutely, they blew me away. So I'm going to have, we're going to, uh, let's roll the clip and then I'm going to have you kind of maybe unpack some of these really provocative themes you talked about in that three minute clip. Hello, pro-life generation! Millennials and Gen Z! To Fannie Lou Hamer and the black women of the movement, your work to educate our community was not in vain. Your knowledge and insight into the systemically racist abortion industry is being exposed. Your no to Margaret Sanger the day she came to your doors and told you to abort your children will be heard around the world. The younger generation of black, Latina, indigenous, and women of color are taking our rightful place to expose the mass genocide of our children and the stain of blood across the movement that says it's standing to protect us. No. You've used us as a shield to hide your trauma and tug of war in your own community. You've mocked impoverished communities all while putting clinics in them. You've told me that I can't be black and pro-life because black women need abortions more than anyone. You tell us that we are disproportionately impacted, never giving us our due proportions from the start. You have pocketed off the fear and pain of women and minors who don't feel fit to parent. You've handed minors abortion pills in silence and told them not to tell their parents. The aches and pains of rape, trafficking, and fear of mothering has made you rich. I stand here today and I proclaim life. I proclaim that future generations will live and not die. That they will be seen as enough to live. I stand in place of the pro-life black women across the globe who are suffering in silence. And we resist the evil strategy to pluck us out like weeds. The time is today and let it be forevermore that we resolve in our hearts that we are different and yet the same. We bleed the same. Let us not use talking points to justify our arguments, but be effective listeners and create whole life from the womb to the tomb solutions. May we make room to hear black women speak and believe them in this movement. And as we march toward the prize of life, let us to understand that we must march hand in hand, that we must march together, because in unity there is strength. So we must deal with our emotional prejudices and the things that we are committed to in order to not only protect life, but sustain life. Because we are gonna be different. We are not only pro-life, but we care about moms too. We care about families. We care about educations. Pro-life for the whole life. Thank you, everyone. Okay. <laughs> um, where do we start? So you use the phrase systemically racist abortion industry. 
Can you, and you, you gave a little bit of, I mean, don't, you know, in three minutes, you don't have time to kind of like give the whole background or evidence for things you're saying. Can you unpack that a little more? If I think some people might be, I think some people in this podcast will be like, yeah, absolutely. Others might be like, whoa, whoa, I never thought about the abortion industry being systemically racist. Can, can you unpack that for us a bit more? Yeah. So actually starting at the root, um, Margaret Singer established um, the birth control. At that time, she was the president of the National Birth Control League. And she had gathered with some of the world's wealthiest individuals, I think one being J.P. Morgan, um, and all of these like eugenicist-minded people. Um, Eugenicist is a belief that um, you remove the poorest and the feeble-minded, these were her words, um, the impoverished the no use and no good for society individuals, you sort of remove them and you get to the cream of the crop. And um, there are so many different measures by which uh, people achieve that. Some do it through, some have done it through abortion. The Tuskegee Airmen experiment, um, the Tuskegee experiment is another. Um, I know like there are so many different like theories out there that like vaccines are another. And so there are, there are so many different ways that people have, been removed slavery from society, human trafficking, um, and one in this in this specific case is abortion. And so, Margaret Singer had begun to mobilize churches and communities um, by which she partnered with uh, people who really believed in her agenda. And actually, I had found a letter she wrote back December seventh, early nineteen hundred, where she says that like Hitler came to her in a dream and placed a crow above her head. And sort of gave her the courage to follow her heart. Oh my God. And um, yeah, she had done a lot of wicked work in Brooklyn, New York. She went to Puerto Rico. She tested birth control on Puerto Rican women. And she actually stood before the Connecticut General Assembly as well. And um, kind of put up a fight for birth control at that time. Uh, and so it was really established with the mind and the idea to rid society of people and specifically black people, some people say African-American people. Um, and so that is why when they begin to actually establish these buildings, majority of clinics landed in 79% of um, impoverished black communities. Um, oftentimes people tell people just like corner stores are in black communities. Um, you know, there's abortion clinics and proximity means a lot. A lot of times people will use a service of whatever they live close by had it been a Whole Foods and maybe a great health facility, we would see a different outcome. But the foundation of it, what is systemic, the foundation of it was to literally rid society of people. And one thing she would always say is that the black population was growing like weeds. Like there's just so many of them. And so it didn't grip the the community that wanted to, even birth control, because black women were saying at that time, we are just a few generations removed from slavery. We want to have our children. We want to have a lot of children. I mean, my great grandmother had 10 kids, you know, so it was a very common thing to have children. And in many different ways, it was for labor. It was for community. It was to make sure that, you know, we had enough people to, to raise a farm, you know, but, but foundationally, it was very familial, the foundation mm -hmm. of it. Um, and so Margaret Singer sort of had her own plan and she really believed in some insane way that to remove poverty is to remove the people that she believes produces and are the source of poverty and of a, of a very poor nation, community and society. Um, and so actually I was protesting the death of Eric Gardner when I was in college in New York. And I had done a project where I, at that time was the president of the black Latino, Latino student association. So I had access to the main server and I sent this email out to the, higher student body and I said we're gonna we're gonna march you know to 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 uh to join the protest in support of Eric Gardner because I had friends who had lived on that corner where he was murdered oh wow um and at the same time like it, it's so interesting I tell people all the time like civil rights really and racial justice opened up the door for my advocacy for life and at the same time while I'm protesting against the murder of Eric Gardner, I'm learning that there are more black babies aborted in New York than born. Oh my and gosh. it was right in the heart of where I go to college. Um, and so I just, 
I could not make sense of it for myself. How could I protest this and not that? Um, and so I remember actually saying one time in college, like, yeah, for life. And uh, one of the girls in the room just freaked out, like, you're what? You know, and I went to a, I studied acting at Marymount Manhattan College, College of the Liberal Arts. <laughs> so I remember saying that and uh, just never sharing that again. Huh. Um, but, but I, I knew that I had to be vocal about it, that it really required education because I don't think a lot of people knew, you know, the foundation of this. Okay. So what would you say to, I mean, it's one thing to acknowledge that, that the roots are filled with this blatant racism, eugenics and everything. Would you say that the industry now is still like that? And, and what evidence would you give for that? I guess part of the evidence would be the fact that these abortion clinics are situated in impoverished, largely black communities. Like you said, is that, is that the, would, is there, are there other things you'd point to to say, Hey, if you open your eyes, you see that this there's, there's systemic racism yeah. that's integrated throughout this whole thing. Yeah. Well, well, here's the deal as a black pro-life woman in the democratic party, I myself have experienced racism from liberals and progressives. And I say that because the slogan for this industry is stand with black women. Yeah. They're very brilliant in their marketing. Stand with black women, you know, my body, my choice. I mean, you have to really think about it. This, this is like really good marketing. It's very similar to um, Margaret saying, you know, if we get to the best of the, of every community, we'll have the best country in the world. Um, and so the reason why I bring up the slogan is because it's stand with black women unless they have a different opinion that we maybe don't agree with, then we, we're not standing with her at all. Hmm. And in fact, you know, I've had women say, you know, I, I, I will never forget talking to someone who said, you know, well, the clinic should be in your community. You know, your people need them more than anything. And I'm like, but you're supposed to be an ally, you know? So, so I do think that this, this, this specific movement, it's very important to, uh, I will say this specifically white women, um, this specific like women's rights movement is believed to be theirs. And Mm -hmm. so when you have a black woman who's coming along and saying, actually, like the need is much different. I had had pockets of conversation with different women and I'm like black women. And I'm like, have you guys felt like you lacked access to abortion? And they're like, no. No, we've never felt that way. We Everybody knows where to get an abortion. Huh. And so you have this industry steady promoting that black and Latin women will lack access. And what I realized is that we are the mask for, to me, the pain and trauma of white women who often use black and Latin women as a mask to hide whatever it is they're really protesting and in this sense i'm i'm specifically speaking about like your you know more like a little bit more left leaning um uh women who you know the women's movement is so important up to and, and so i kind of have experienced that and i'm in connecticut where like man, you know many republicans are socially liberal as well this is like you know it's like a it's like a different type of politics here okay um you know i i'm against a republican who's pro choice so it's like pro-choice Republican and pro-life Democrat, (laughs) you know, um, you know, but, but I still see some of the residue of racism today in, in the abortion industry, for sure. Um, the marketing, um, setting up programs in like schools of color. Um, you know, I don't, I, I, and I could be so wrong, but I doubt like Planned Parenthood is going to choke and Hopkins. Like I doubt it you know um but they're definitely going to you know schools in the inner city so so do do you think it's not um I, as you're talking i'm thinking so so it might not be blatant kind of margaret singer level racism it's more subtle or and maybe even do, do you think some of the ra- racism in the industry people who are in the industry actually don't even see it or do you think some do and they're just kind of like you know what I mean? Like, is it, could, could it be just, it's just like ignorance of, of just absorbing certain messages that they've heard other people say, so they don't realize how racist it, it can be. I mean, maybe that's the best reading of the situation. I don't. Yeah. There's definitely a bit of 
there's there are there are two things. So one is propaganda. I really just think that people just don't know the truth, and they've been fed what they've been fed for so long and believe it. Um, there's a woman who lives in my town, and she was a pro-life Democrat. Um, she ended up like leaving the party. I think she's independent now. She's very pro-life. But she said to me not too long ago, she said, I really believe people 50 and under just don't know the truth about this industry like I do mm. before Roe versus Wade was implemented. And I think a bit of it is that. And I think when you lace a movement in women's empowerment and women had experienced many different challenges in all different facets of society, then you'll have people bandwagoning the support and aid of and for women because, you know, I, I believe God is raising up women in many different ways. However, it's false. It's it's really, truly false. We've created a false sense of empowerment, um, you know, and then now you have, like, I, I'm reached out to by young women all the time who are so traumatized by their abortion choice. Really? Um, yes. Yes, very much so. And I do think it, it's a bit of um, the, the abortion industry has a lot of money and therefore has a big lobby and therefore has a lot of access and resources to educate people the way they want them to be educated. What are some things that you would say people are most ignorant about? I mean, if you've touched on a, a couple of them already, but are there other like big picture things that you're like, man, if people just knew the truth about X, Y, or Z, they might have a different view of, of the industry? I think uh, several different things. I think one, uh, the lack of education around uh, miscarriage management and ep eptopic pregnancies. Okay. Um, when you have, when Roe versus Wade was like on the brink of overturning, you had people saying a woman who has a miscarriage has to carry a dead baby or a woman with an ectopic pregnancy. And because so legislatively and morally, a uh, miscarriage is not an abortion, but medically they have coined it a spontaneous abortion. And so, which is such an insult. <laughs> well, abortion by definition implies human agency, doesn't it? Like somebody did something like, it seems like that's intrinsic to the term that there's a human agency involved in the act, whereas a miscarriage is not. I don't know. That just seems odd that they would conflate the two. Well, I guess that's that's your point. They're they're using rhetoric to to as part of propaganda. Exactly, exactly. And the and 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 the goal is to then make you sort of look like a monster for saying I am pro life and you know I do not support abortion and you know and and this is you know X Y and Z are the reasons. And so then oftentimes you're faced with questions like, so what if a woman is carrying you know. A, a dead baby or what if a woman is going through a miscarriage so there's so much uh, misinformation and it's being pushed by Hollywood it's being pushed by the entertainment industry you have people in all all spheres of influence that are pushing this false information you have doctors who get paid lots of money by these industries I mean now you have pharmacists that can prescribe birth control with no medical history and so all it's, I mean, the love of money is the root of all evil. And so that's really the core to me hmm. of some of the issues that I see, um, you know, today. And even, I mean, even like, you know, black and Latin women, like access to abortion. Now they've thrown indigenous women in it. And I'm like, hmm. you know, the, in, the Native American population is so small when it comes to abortion stats that oftentimes they're not even on the, they're not even on the list. Um, so just, I mean, different things like that, you sort of, you sort of hear and see and, uh, you know, or, or that, that abortion is an empowering choice. And sometimes you have to make that choice because you want to get your degree or you want to be, uh, you want to have a successful career. There was once a point in time where being a mom was being a superhero. And mm. today, so much of what we see is being a mom is a burden. It's the worst decision you can make for yourself. It'll slow your life down. You won't have a career. Um, you know, it'll mess your body up. I mean, you have women who are getting surrogates just because they don't want to change their, their bodies to look a different way. So, I mean, there there are many different influences, I think, around us. Uh, but what I really love about Gen Z is they are on a quest for truth. Mm. And I think that's why when you get on TikTok, you see so many conspiracy theories because I was watching a video the other day that was like, are mermaids real? 
you know, and it was like a breakdown how mermaids were real. I, I mean, it even went it even went to the fallen angels and i mean it was really powerful like it was actually really <laughs> powerful but these gen z kids were on social media they were talking about sirens and mermaids right like then there was another video about uh the population then i saw another video about uh the uh, the best states the states with the best food i mean they're they're really huh. on a quest for truth and i think it's so powerful this ge- generation and um I think because they face different challenges, um, the conversation around like oppression or all of those different things may look a little different than they did generations before. And that even includes abortion when you have so many young women who have access to way more resources than they did before, who are getting Mm -hmm. their degrees, who are starting businesses. And so oftentimes I'll I've even shared with like some of my colleagues and we've had really great discussion, you know, as a millennial woman, young one, it's sometimes it's offensive when you hear um, women talk, young women talked about in a way where we are not substantially responsible Mm. and making responsible decisions and that we always need to rely on this sort of cork or this bandaid of abortion um, because we're irresponsible. That's sort of the way we're projected. And I think that younger women uh, are so much smarter than that. And I, mm. I, I mean, even for myself, mm. my friends are not fearing having children uh, because of their careers or that it'll negatively impact their lives. They're more so concerned about the issues around maternal health mm. and infant mortality. Um, and so I think you know, we, we as a society, we're, we're in a really great space of educating and enlightening um, with resources like TikTok, where you'll see someone kind of challenge what's the norm or what's popular. Um, and it kind of is giving us leverage to really angle how we want this conversation to be as people who stand for life. And I do think being whole life in this time and season is significant to young people um, because for them, they are very much so. Uh, social um, social challenges or social justice driven, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's like climate change. I mean, climate change is huge. Climate change is so huge. Agriculture, um, aquaculture, um, um, st- uh, starting businesses, the goal of building generational wealth. I called a realtor the other day and he said that the first time home buyers program in Connecticut, a lot of young people are buying multifamily houses out the gate. Because wow. they want to establish some form of, of you know, wealth and income. So I really do think we're in just a different day, just a different day in time. And, and I, I know the abortion industry understands it's shrinking in a way, um, which is why they begin to tap into other communities and other groups, um, I believe, to, to keep their, their, uh, their momentum going. So are you saying that Gen Gen Z is would be more at least questioning um abortion as a fundamental human right or as a moral good like as as opposed to maybe past or older generations are are they because there's this I, there's this thought that you know as society progresses progressive values will be more widely embraced by each succeeding generation and I've heard both sides of this. Some people say Gen Z is is actually reversing that tide a little bit. They're questioning abortion, but I've heard other people say no, no, they're way more, you know, accepting it. Do you have any data or have you looked at, at this or So what I have seen is so what I've personally seen is Gen Z by like droves. It's like 70 plus percent of Gen Z, their top priority is climate change. Really? Abortion was like four. It was climate change. Uh, student debt cancellation. Um, I forgot the fourth. I mean, the third and then abortion. I do think it's it's not as um, I, I sort of am going to go back to it's not, we're not in like the era of the hippie movement um, or this like mass move of like sexual liberation um, and like watching Jesus Revolution kind of learning that like, you know, hippies desired good things just the wrong way um and so what i see with gen z is that even if they're dating they you know they could be dating or you know engaging in you know different things but there are just so many 
other things to do than have sex. And that's that's the reality of it. Um, you know, there are so many things to do than engage in sexual activity. Um, but but what I do what I do know is um that there are, you know, I think sixty percent of Gen Z would prefer to buy an item if they know that it's going to an important cause Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. most important cause that's that's raising the most money is truly climate change and that's why i like i said i'm a young millennial but i had to sort of school myself on climate change because i sit on the environmental committee and we've had several young people come before us um and testify i don't really see college students testifying young college students testifying um, in public health in support of abortion. I don't, hmm. but they come before the education committee. Um, and I actually see parents say, you know, we don't really want our kids to learn about these things. We want to teach our own kids these things. Um, and so I just, I just think that, you know, I, I, I tend to see this discussion as being way more important for like middle-aged women or women who are a bit older, mm-hmm. um, you know, who are like, to say bands off their body. And, and sometimes I'll say, you know, well, you are you you've you've had that era and that time of having children mm-hmm. and of investing in your children's future. I, I believe it's time to listen to younger women and listen to what's really important to us. And I will tell you, um, I hear a lot about maternal health. A, a million millennials are becoming moms every year. Uh, I mean, I see millennial women talk about wanting families and wanting children. Um, you know, this this like idea that women are striving to be single parents. No, this idea that women are striving to be like, you know, liberated by abortion. I just don't, (laughs) I don't see the realism in that. Um, I see what is done in media, but I don't see the realism in that around um, a society that to me is oftentimes influenced by culture. That that's really helpful. And that's yeah. In my anecdotal experience with with both I'm a Gen Xer, so and, and a lot of my ministry is with people my age and younger, all the way down to Gen Z. I'm a parent of four Gen Z kids. So I, I I'm oh, able cool. to kind of peek behind the door of all these different generations. And it's it's I find it fascinating. And Gen Z, I I agree with yeah. you. The truth seeking, like they're they're just you can't put them in a box. And I see so many generalizations about Gen Z that I'm like, I, I don't know if that's, that's, that's very accurate. I, I'm curious though, but my, my, I'm curious, your, your perspective on the abortion, I almost call it the abortion industrial complex. <laughs> Maybe we should call it that. Um, yeah, it, it having, it be, having systemically racist roots and actually ongoing systemically racist elements is that how widely shared is that opinion among specifically among women of color in your experience? Like is Tr- Trine McGee, is she just an, an anomaly? Um, a, you know, um, or is this more widespread than people might, might think? Um, it's definitely more widespread. I, I tell a lot, I, you know, I've oftentimes told my conservative colleagues when the topic of abortion is oftentimes used as a, it's unfortunate because I think the racial and systemic racial part of abortion um, from the conservative side has been used as more of a talking point mm-hmm. than it has been as a means to educate people. Okay. And, you know, I, I, I share with my colleague, she said, I just don't understand why there are certain people in communities who are not moved by that. And I told her, well, it's not that they're moved by that. I just think there are so many barriers and there are so many things that are um, racially driven and motivated and that have been a problem that you're just like, okay, this is another, like, okay. Mm. I mean, everything seems to be a barrier that way. So, but after I won the primary, after the turn of Roe versus Wade, Roe versus Wade overturned in June and my primary was in August. Um, you know, it was in the news. This is the hottest, you know, election to watch, uh, this year. And, um, I think what freaked people out was how I got reelected um, in a like really large amount of number in a lead from my uh, competitor, my opponent. Um, but it made clear a few things that one, the largest population in my district um, are black homeowners. I, I tried to explain to people that one, black people are pro-life, even if not all, um, what I often hear on the doors canvassing is I don't believe in abortion. 
they may not call themselves pro-life, uh, pro, pro but they say, I don't believe in abortion. I've heard so many older women say, like, I kept my child. I don't believe in abortion. It's really common. And those who have chosen abortion, you don't talk about it because it was a bad decision and it was shame. And we don't do that, mm. you know? So, like, that's kind of the narrative around that. So my, I had colleagues who were shocked and I tried to explain to them, well, you know, I, it's, this is just not a top priority for individuals. And the video that went viral before March for life was me speaking on the floor. And I read the top 10 priorities for the black community and abortion was not one. It was lowering childcare costs. It was lowering healthcare costs. Um, it was accessing healthy food. It was for uh, millennials. It was canceling student loans but it was not, in fact, abortion. And and I don't think abortion has ever been a black public health issue. Hmm. Um, I think that the, I think right now with black maternal health and even the air quality in certain communities or the water, the lead in water has been what's uh, forged conversations or housing um, has forged conversations in the black community more than abortion has. I really just don't see women really comfortable talking about it. It just takes courage hmm. to stand up and say, I'm a Democrat or I'm on this side, you know, I'm a Republican or I'm independent and I'm very pro-life, especially in a society where we've seen deem that to be like anti-woman. This episode is sponsored by the Pour Over Podcast. Oh my word, I love the Pour Over Podcast. It is a trustworthy news resource guiding people toward eternal hope. It's not Republican, it's not Democrat, it's not conservative, it's not liberal. Instead, it is a Christ-centered summary of the major events going on in politics and in culture. Uh, like most of you, I am so tired of news outlets that are so clearly biased toward the right or to the left. I want to stay informed with what's going on, but I hate how traditional news outlets shape my heart and try to win me to a certain side. I mean, if you don't believe me, just ask yourself this question. After listening to, say, I don't know, CNN or Fox News for like 30 minutes, am I less or more or more motivated to love my neighbor and my enemy? If the answer is less than Houston, we have a huge problem, a discipleship problem. This is why I'm so excited about the Pour Over podcast. Each episode is only about seven minutes long, and they just tell you about what's going on in the world. They don't tell you how to interpret the various events or how you should feel about what's going on. Instead, they just let you know about the facts of what's going on while reminding listeners that our ultimate identity and hope is in Jesus Christ. I've even met some of the people at the pour over and they are super awesome. They're not some like closeted liberal or closeted conservative think tank. Um, like they're truly genuinely just trying to keep us informed while staying focused on Christ. So don't let traditional media outlets steal your affection away from loving people who might vote differently than you. Instead, check out and subscribe to the Pour Over podcast in your favorite podcast app. What's it like being a pro-life Democrat? Is, is that, is that, again, maybe maybe that's a higher percentage than people real? Well, I would, so you mentioned, I mean, I, I think, tell me, tell me if I'm wrong, the majority of uh, black people would vote Democrat and yet also the majority of black people would also be pro-life or at least not pro-abortion. Is that, is that correct? Those two assumptions? Um, I mean, yeah, I, well, I would say this is um, majority Democrats vote uh, pro-life in ways that I think like majority, like majority Democrat women, just like I think majority uh, uh, white women specifically vote Republican. I think it was like 74 to 78 percent white women okay. for uh, or maybe 84 percent for black women. It's like 92. So it's kind of like okay. the same on both sides. Uh, but but I, there were many people in my district who'd say, like, I'm pro-life, too. I stand with Representative McGee. I'm a Democrat, but I'm also pro-life. Um, I do think, you know, uh, um, in many different ways, historically, you know, when you look at something like police brutality, that's something that people feel like they uh, cannot control versus, like, abortion. You kind of mm. feel like you're in control of that. Um, mm. and so I think there are many different reasons why Black individuals vote um, a Democrat. But I know for sure, you know, I, I heard there's a there is a doctor. He's not really the most liked person. Uh, he's very pro in his beliefs, but his name is Dr. Umar. And he said, don't get this twisted. Black people are very pro-life. And people were in the comments like, yeah, no, we really, really, we really are. But it kind of goes back to proximity and it goes back to, um, you know, when this clinic was the only means of health care. Or access to health that I had 
but just like fast food, it presents as a, you know, trusting friend, but it's kind of killing you slowly, you know? Um, and so I, I, yeah, I definitely had that experience in my district and it was cool to hear the older black women come to the polls and say, well, we're pro-life too. And we're Democrat and we're voting for you. (laughs) Catholics as well. Yeah. And Catholics would be, would Catholics be, again, we're dealing with just broad brush, you know, statements, but would Catholics be on the whole more Democrat than Republican yeah. percentage wise? And yet they would be definitely pro-life. Yes. Um, yeah. In my district, for sure, they're, they're Democrat, but they're pro-life. Um, I have, there are conservative um, Catholics in my district as well. Um, but I think I received like an influx of emails from pro-life uh, Catholics who were Democrat. Okay. I, so I'm curious, I, maybe the elephant in the room question people want to know is, okay, you're obviously very passionate about being pro-life. Why are you a Democrat? What is it? Is it climate change? Is it, is it, uh, healthcare? Is it student loans? Yeah. I mean, some of these other issues as well, or. Yeah. Because I don't think either party really owns, um, what it means to stand on a life platform. And I think, you know, you know, for me in, in many different ways, I am influenced by my morals and my values. You know, I have colleagues on the Republican side who vote conservative, but they don't, but they're not more, but they're not morally driven. Okay. Um, and, or like have a faith. Um, so for me, it is, there's a whole, there's a whole like slew slew of things. Um, and I do like the emphasis around climate change, especially as it's embracing the younger generation. I love the emphasis around, um, student debt. And I sort of talked about that as well. Um, you know, oftentimes I tell people, if you really care about what's an issue for black women, like ditch abortion. And let's talk about student loans because, you know, right now black women are are more educated by race and gender, you know? So if you really cared about what was disparaging us, let's talk about how we're paying back student loans for the rest of our lives or deferring them, you know? Um, And so there are many different issues to me that are really important on the Democrat side, but I do think that we need people on both sides to vote the same way. And if there's not anyone keeping a balance on a side, it can swing in a direction that actually isn't a reflection of what people want and need. So I think your average Democrat is like not progressive, really, like not progressively left. They're not, they're not. I don't know how much of, I was looking at the map of Congress the other day and it was like the blue dogs, the progressives. And I just, I don't really know how many of the the progressives, and I'm not attacking Congress. I respect all of them for the work they do. I just don't know how progressive some of their districts are. Maybe when it comes to housing policies um, or even education in terms of, you know, know, public education or public uh, free community college, because there are different levels of progressivism. But specifically when it comes to social issues, Mm -hmm. I just, I don't know how progressive... Hmm. all of, you know, these districts are. Cause I think some people are having a hard time embracing that. Like, Oh, being a woman is a feeling. Right. <laughs> I, you know, it's, yeah. I, I think people don't like that. It's just like, I kind of spoke before. It just takes courage. And for me, I, I speak out against what I don't agree with, with my party. Do, do you think a lot of it is it, going back is propaganda is stuff people hear on the news, social media, and they get maybe a warped perception of how the majority of people are actually thinking. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is why I don't, I turn off the news. Yeah. Um, absolutely. <laughs> uh, even, in, even, you know, it's, I, I thank God for this position that he's put me in because like right now I'm writing and, and finishing up and producing a play. And um, I feel like the arts and politics sort of run adjacent because the entertainment industry is so uh, it's what inspires a lot of politics. But oftentimes I will see a bill or people challenge a bill or protest a bill in mainstream media. And then, you know, I, I, I read it and I'm like, that's not what the bill said. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not even the context or content of the bill. And so I do think that the media has played a part in warping people's minds um, you know, I had a teacher back in the day who used to call TV television. Um, he says, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it tells a lie to your vision. That's what he used to say. Um, and, and so I do think, you know, when you have mainstream, like for example, a Fox and a CNN, which at one point I think were funded by the same people kind of keeping people on different ends on purpose when 
when uh, 80, it was like 84% of us really truly identify as a middle. Huh. 6% identify as progressive and 8% or 8% identify as progressive and 6% identify as really ultra right. I think there's a lot of middle. There's actually more middle than not. Um, and, and I, you know, I, there are people who share with me, listen, I don't, I have nothing against this community or, you know, I believe everyone has, should have access to housing and clean water, but I just don't agree with these things, you know? Mm. So, but we were in a society where there's diplomacy is kind of going out the window and you're either anti or you are phobic or you're all of these different things. And sometimes we just, we have to ask hard questions and be able to defend them or stand in them or research them ourselves before we sort of you're canceled and I don't want to talk to you because we don't agree. I, I have a random question, but you kind of stuff you're saying kind of unearthed it in my own mind. So I'm just going to ask it. And this is theology and raw. So that's what we do. Okay. And because so you're as a politician, I mean, you're, you've been able to peek behind the curtain a little bit, right? And a lot of us are kind of like, what's going, what's going on back there? You know, um, in your opinion, who, what, side has more power and money and maybe would produce more fear in your own heart, the far right or far left? Like I'm, you know, the, 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 the radical progressive left or the kind of Christian nationalist far radical, right? Cause I've, I talked to friends who give, give completely opposite opinions on that on a question like that. I'm like, I, what's the right answer? I don't, I don't know. Like, is it, is it, you know, the, the Christian nationalists, be, you know, on the right, or is it the George, George Soros? Is that even like a, you know, would he, would he be a, an example of somebody on the far left that has a lot of money and power and is pulling strings and stuff? Or does that question even make sense? I don't even know if that just came to my mind as you're talking. It, it does. It does. So I, I, I say this often and I know like, you know, people can, it's controversial and people can kind of think what they want, but to me, they're the same person. I, they're the same. That I would, I would, they that would are, be my assumption too. They're the same person. A lot of them are people who grew up wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and not only are they the same person, but their family, their brother and sister, they are un- like, like progressive white women to me or progressive individuals in general. And, but this is when it comes to social issues. So I have to be specific because in like what I see more so is like progressive white women, they are fighting far right conservative white men. They're fighting each other. So they're, they're the same person. They understand each other because they all grew up in the same house. So whether it's the father and the daughter or the niece and the uncle or the brother and the sister, they all understand each other. You know, I, I always find this fascinating, but there's like a common trend <laughs> of conservative, of progressive white women who marry conservative white men. Huh. There's, why, there's why, few, why, there's why is that? that? What? <laughs> because I think they understand each other. <laughs> they really understand each other. Now, now it's funny. They won't give me a pass and be my friend as a, you know, black woman who they're like, Oh no, on this, she's conservative. We can't be friends with her, you know? Um, but I think a bit of that is, and this is like nation, this is something nationwide. This is actually a pretty common thing. Um, but I think it's because they, there's a part of them that understands each other and the, the fight for liberation and women comes from a place of trauma. It really, and to me, it goes back to like the slave master's wife Mm. who endured tons of trauma and um, I, I think a lot of it is it's kind of like my theory. I actually I haven't released it, but I wrote a blog on this because what I see is them fighting each other. And it's just to two extremes. It's kind of see which one can go the extreme and the, the furthest. So they both have money. Sometimes they're two wings of the same bird. They both know each other's operations so that they can one up each other. I think media is a little bit more liberal, mm-hmm. um, but less and less people are are kind of tuning in that way yeah their people are leaning more toward independent sources they say that now like people even more people are watching like bbc news or international news because they don't care they just reported how it is um and so i think people are kind of like leaning away like my generation of like young people are not tuning into cnn yeah they're not you know or fox as much it's kind of 
that's like definitely an older generation. Um, but they're they're definitely one. They're they're the same person, the silver spoon person who, in one way, you know, I, Justin actually said this recently at Jude Three. He said you have to kind of see the good in people when you kind of see the good in them and like what it is they're trying to achieve. It kind of shifts your perspective on how to even view them or work with them or engage with them. Well, I, I there was a study that I read a while back that said that it said the exact thing you did that when you go to the far extremes on each side you get the same kinds of people usually white educated elite wealthy like they're very much come from the same like you said the same the same kind of family um so i think there i mean i I, I, as always i forget where i read these things but i mean i think there is even data on that that's been my anecdotal experience i would say as well is is when i hear the far right it sounds very much like the far left and vice versa just different things they're fighting for you mentioned kind of mainstream media and and propaganda and everything do you do you have some favorite journalists that um since we're on this topic that that you feel like man if if here's some outlets or writers or people or thinkers are like they're they're very fair and trustworthy or you're you're kind of snickering a little (laughs) (laughs) it's so hard it's so it's so hard today it's really really hard i mean i really like esau mccauley um i love his sort of opinion pieces and such they're really good they come from like a good perspective um you know i mentioned christiane amanpour but when she's on tv occasionally i love to watch her her thing you never really know how she votes what she supports yeah uh what she she's never been too vocal about those things um and i think she's done just that age of journalism is like leaving a little bit um so i still listen to her and kind of engage in her and her things um, there's a source, I'm forgetting the name of it, but it's independent and it's like crowdfunded almost. It's funded by people. It's, that's, that's a source that I def, I like to read. Um, and that there's a wide range of kind of like opinion pieces to like college age to older, more okay. experienced, you know, writers. Um, but I just kind of <laughs> wax and wane. And yeah. oftentimes when you're reading bills all the time and you're sort of, you kind of know the truth that the media maybe not want to support. So I, <laughs> you know, I, I kind of, I watch local news to know what's going on, but I have like pulled away from news a bit because it, it's so frustrating. Well, I think, I mean, this is a whole nother conversation, but it's interesting how influential independent sources are, or even like podcasts. Um, and there, there's a, I think there's a social experience. I would love you actually as a Democrat, I would love your thoughts on this. Um, cause I, 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 I dabble, I try to keep up with what's going on, but I am, I am so far removed from like the ins and outs of political movements and stuff, <laughs> but I am on a, on a sociological level, I'm kind of fascinated at, um, RFK juniors popularity, even though he's given minimal platform on any mainstream news outlets, but he's take he's he's going on every single long form um, podcast, and and I think people are not maybe they don't realize how popular these out outlets are. I mean, the classic, of course, is you know Joe Rogan gets twelve million views per episode, where CNN might get a million, so he's like twelve times more exposure, you know, and that's obviously an anomaly. But there's other shows that are very popular as well. And and if you're hitting all of these shows, you're actually covering way more ground. And when you're not on, you know, mainstream outlets are so short, it's soundbitey, it's this, that, but when you go on, you can talk for two or three hours. People can actually hear your ideas in context. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting, it's, I I feel like it's the same social experiment that we had with Donald Trump and Twitter back in 2016. We realized like, Oh my word, he got elected because of Twitter. (laughs) Like really like he, and I think now I'm wondering if these independent sources primarily through podcasts are, are, are mixing things up in a way that we don't really realize until we'll look back in five to 10 years to kind of see. Um, I don't know. I'm just totally thinking out loud. I could totally be hundred percent wrong. <laughs> I mean, podcasts are, podcasts are incredible. If for some reason, I think so much of people still believe that the, especially people in government and positions of power believe that the greater influence is being seen. Huh? Um, and specifically on mainstream, on, on mainstream platforms, um, you know, MSNBC, ABC, um, CNN, The View, The Talk, you know, whichever. I, I, I still think uh, the Faulkner Report and Fox, I still think that people 
believe that that is the means to, to gain mobility and to gain a more like tan, like something you could see, like kind of support um, or the comments on Facebook live or, but, but a lot of young people are engaging in podcasts and there's a little, there's a little bit, it kind of reminds me of like, you know, Dave Chappelle when he's like, I'm going to Netflix because I know I could just be myself Yeah. versus like, you know, some of these other networks that there are so many different restrictions as a comedian who wants to be raw in my like raw form. I need to go somewhere where I can be free. I think that's what podcasts have become. And to me, they're really uh, generating so much uh, support and a huge following. And in RFK's uh, case, I just think he was just very dangerous to the, the Democrat. I just think he was very dangerous to the party's platform because um, a lot of people support him on both sides. And there was okay, just yeah. a way of, I think, of uniting people that is scary to, you know, to really both platforms. Yeah. It's yeah. like, whoa, there are, there are Democrats supporting him as well. That's how that's how Tulsi Gabbard was. Yes. Before yeah. she left the Democratic Party, she was like building a following on both sides. And it was like, OK, no, she's a threat um, because she's actually taking votes from Trump. And she's not, you know, in their minds, like she's not a bigot, you know, or she's not, you know, racially, you know, racially spewing things. But she's pulling both, you know, voters from both sides. You know, so, yeah. And she did yeah. a lot of podcasts as well. Yeah. Well, they're, they're both, I guess, in, in the case of both of them. And I know I've, I've listened to maybe a few hours of RFK Jr. on maybe half a dozen different podcasts. Largely just because I find them social from a sociological perspective. For, for I, I often pay attention to things as like just like almost like as just if I remove myself from the society and just kind of pay attention to different trends, I just find it interesting. I, you know, is he right or wrong? I don't I don't I don't know enough to say, you know, what he's saying is right or wrong. To me, that's almost secondary to kind of for my interest in seeing kind of like, wow, what's going on? Why would somebody that seems to you know he's a democrat but is not well liked by the democratic party at all he says some pretty things that sound pretty outlandish but he seems to back him up with stuff that i'm like i i would have to do a lot of research to say he's wrong on this or that whatever um but he's speaking out against the establishment in ways that i'm like oh yeah of course he's gonna not be well liked on the side of the aisle that he's registered with um let, let's go back to abortion and then i'll i'll, I'll let you go here um you mentioned abortion regret. Is that a pretty widespread thing when, when people get an abortion? It, it, or is it a fringe thing? Is it a small percentage? Or is it a lot of people that get an abortion end up on some level regretting it? So um, statistics show that 98% of women who have considered suicide um, have had abortions within a certain amount of time. Um, you know, prior to c considering suicide. Um, I mean, there are, there are, um, my choice story, um, um, shout your abortion to abortion recovery, um, abortion survivors network. I mean, live action, all of these platforms share stories of abortion regret. They're everywhere. Wow. They're all over the media. Um, and I think the one who kind of became mainstream with her abortion regret was when Sharon Osbourne shared her story about how it actually physically like, really messed her up. Hmm. Um, she had gotten an abortion at 17 years old. And so that, that definitely is a wide, a widespread thing as far as post-abortive support. I think we're talking more about it, but we need to talk more, even more about it. Uh, different mental health resources for women to seek counseling after abortion, uh, pregnancy centers provide, but we have to really talk more about it because I think we've normalized trauma in a way where it's been this empowering thing. And then you have a woman that says like, actually it wasn't empowering. It was very painful. And this is what I experienced in aftermath. Um, we, we often talk about, you know, the statistic is like 99% of women who chose life over an abortion does not regret their, their decision. So women are not regretting keeping their children, but they wow. do regret of having abortions uh, four out of every 10 women in church um, four out of every 10 women who have abortions are actively attending church so this is also a big issue for our church communities as well um, and then I think 
you know, when it comes to the shame that women have carried, um, you know, we have to find ways to really embrace women um, as they experience a, a, a loss like mm-hmm. abortion, um, mm-hmm. especially in church. Uh, there are all sorts of programs. There was this one program. It's called like I believe it was called like the Esther's program, where a church would adopt a family um, and sort of just help them with their children. But I hope to one day see, you know, centers, pregnancy centers, even community centers that help families uh, pr- provide community and village that help them raise their children all the way up to their eighteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but wow. yeah, a- abortion regret is a, is a thing. I do get calls and emails and. Um, I had a young woman reach out to me who wanted to publicly share her her story about, um, you know, sort of having regretted her abortion and almost dying. So that's that's common as well. Um, that happened, young woman right here in Connecticut. Um, so I, I just think that that women, when when women see others share, then they feel more, um, and you know, encouraged to share, it's like an inclination to to share their stories as well. What are the main factors that would lead someone to get an abortion? Is it is it lack of financial resources to provide, or yeah. or shame from yeah. a religious community of of maybe having sex outside of marriage or something? I mean, the, I think you might be referring to the the Lifeway study that was done a few years ago that the the whole four out of ten women are church going women, and I remember in that study there there were there was a few things said. Number one was the shame of having a baby out of wedlock was so profound. And then the shame of getting an abortion was profound. It was kind of like damned if you do, damned if you don't. And there was nowhere to go. And so it was kind of like a secret abortion that was just kind of on the side really quickly was to them the best available option. So there's certain things in their in, in, in our religious environments that obviously need to change. Anyway, my original question, what, what are some main factors that lead someone to get an abortion? Is Is it finances or... So, yeah, 73% of women would prefer to parent if they had resources. Mm. So it to me, you know, the abortion industry really uses fear and poverty as a tool to make its own self rich. Um, and it is a it is, you know, women. It's it's this idea that you you have to have that you have to be privileged to parent. Um, I also think it's just, you know, it's something when you see statistics that show all of the women who are successful who are millionaires who are having abortions especially in the in the industry um is it's a you know it's it's a it's a way you're messing your career when you have a child so seeking abortion i mean michelle williams got up literally at the oscars and said that she made a choice and that's basically how she got her award i was like are you kidding me and actually twitter erupted um all sorts of women got on twitter and was like that was not that was inappropriate um but yeah, it usually is financial resources and circumstances situations. 64% of women are coerced by their partners. Um, 40% of women seek, will then go back and seek another abortion. Um, you know, and so a very, very small percentage of women uh, seek abortion after rape and, and incest as well. And so I think these statistics sort of show us um, you know, the community of people that feel of women that feel neglected and underserved mm-hmm. and even um, underrepresented, you know, um, scripture tells us to be voice for a voice for the voiceless. And so I think a lot of these women uh, just don't feel empowered to say, like, this was my circumstances situation and I just did not feel equipped um, to provide in this situation. Um, and so then, you know, therefore I made this decision. Mm-hmm. But very rarely is it you know, women skip it. I think the, this was heartbreaking, but there was this guy on TikTok and he said that he was escorting his friend. This was a second friend he had done this to, to an abortion clinic um, to become unpregnant. And I think the most gripping part of that whole video was when she stood in the, like the, the window of a store and you could see her reflection. And that girl had to be about six months. Like she was, very clearly showing, um, very clearly showing, and it had to be um, a late-term facility. There's just no way because their sonic was too big, um, you know. And so, like, that's the culture and times is promoting that. That's what's getting millions and millions of views, um, or being laughed at or mocked. But in reality, women struggle after making abortion decisions. 
Well, Tr- Trinae, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, for sharing your car with us <laughs> this afternoon and lots and I'm lots to so think about. I'm sorry that I'm in my car. <laughs> It's totally fine. It was I, just I, one of those things. It was one of those things. <laughs> I have hosted a podcast for my car before, so there's there's no, no no shame there. So where can people find out more about you? Uh, you, you get a website? Please follow uh, my, my Instagram. It's Rep Trinae McGee. And um, you can look up CGA, which is Connecticut General Assembly, and follow my page. You can even describe, uh, subscribe to my monthly newsletters to see what I'm updated doing. And my personal website and platforms are trinamegee.com and my other social medias as well. So thank you so much for having me. This is great. Thanks for coming on the show, Trina. I really appreciate it. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.